The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. And welcome to The Dark Word. I am your host, as always, Philip Farkasi. Just beyond excited today because this being the season finale, uh, I have an extra, extra special guest, double extras. Let me just read his bio and let's get to, because we have a lot to talk about. Uh, my guest today is Victor Laval, and he is the author of the short story collection, Slapboxing with Jesus, and four novels, The Ecstatic, Big Machine, The Devil in Silver, and The Changeling, as well as two novellas, Lucretia and the Croons, and The Ballad of Black Tom. He's also the creator and writer of two comic books, Victor Laval's Destroyer and Eve. He has been the recipient of numerous awards, including the World Fantasy Award, British Fantasy Award, Bram Stoker Award, Whiting Writers Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, Shirley Jackson Award, American Book Award, and the key to Southeast Queens. He was raised in Queens, New York. He now lives in Washington Heights with his wife and kids, and he teaches at Columbia University. Victor, I'm so happy to have you. Hey, Philip, it's real. I'm real happy uh, to be here and honored to join the conversation. Uh, thanks, man. Uh, so I have a lot I want to talk to you about, but I'd like to start uh, every episode, as people who listen to uh, this show know, flummoxing my guest by saying, do you recall your first professional fiction sale? And what was it? And what did you learn from it? I do, actually. Um, my first actual sale was to a magazine that no longer exists. It's called Code Magazine. Mm -hmm. It was in the late 90s, and it was trying to do kind of a black GQ. Um, I wouldn't even be surprised if it was under that umbrella, and they just had this separate thing. Um, but the literary editor was a really, really great uh, writer uh, named Quincy Troop. Uh, he was doing their, he was picking all their fiction and I'd tried to, uh, my first book was a book of short stories. I tried and my agent had tried to sell a bunch of those stories uh, to different like literary journals and people were very nice in their rejections, but a nice rejection is still a rejection. Right. And so she sent it to this code magazine that had sort of popped up and uh, sent a very short story of mine, maybe two pages long, two, three pages long. And um, the great pleasure of it was number one, obviously that they said yes, that Quincy said yes, but two, they paid a dollar a word. Wow. At that time. Yeah, it was, that's what I mean. Like it was, it was, you know, glossy, glossy magazine money. Yeah. Uh, and so that was the only thing that my agent and I joked about was like, oh, we should have sent them one of the long stories. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I got a novella for you guys. You're going to love it. That's right. That's right. But nonetheless, it was uh, such a gift. And um, especially because I think all the other stories from the collection had been looked at, but rejected by various places. And so there was also the sense of, I was happy for the money in the end, you know, it was a dollar word, but it might've been 750 bucks, which was a lot of money back yeah. uh, for me, but it was also, you know, some, some rent money. 
But the bigger thing was, hey, when that issue came out, look at that, this glossy, cool magazine that is going to be out of business in a year. There's my name. Yeah. Do you have a copy of the magazine still somewhere? I do have it somewhere in the like in the archives? Uh, like I have yeah in the in in with the archives in a cardboard box. Yeah. But yes, I do I of course I kept it, you know, like uh, I felt very very proud and also, you know, it was a a boost after a lot of rejection. Yeah, right. And so let's go into that first collection because it's Slapboxing with Jesus was a was a collection of literary stories, and it was correct me if I'm wrong. It was published by Vintage, is that right? That's right. Yeah, and that was 1999. 99 is when it came out. Yeah, I mean, there might be an interesting story for your uh, for your listeners there because it is writer related, I guess. Right, like about the life of a book. Yeah, please. For that one, um, so I I wrote most of those stories during my MFA program. I got an agent because one of my professors said, I like what you're doing. You should send this to my agent, a woman named Gloria Loomis. So I sent them to her and she liked them very much. And she said, but they're not ready yet. Why don't you take the summer? I sent them to her, say in May. And she said, why don't you take the summer and we'll send them out in September? And I said, okay. And I took a year. I got a job. I worked at the Barnes and Noble in Union Square in Manhattan. I was sharing an apartment with my best friend, Matt Johnson, who I'd met in the program. And it took me about a year with working full time to touch those stories up and make them feel strong in the way I wanted them to feel strong. And so then what she did was first she sent them out to all these different journals because she said, if we can tell the publishers this has been published in such and such place and such and such place, these stories, um, that might help drum up enthusiasm. Uh, but as I said, uh, nobody wanted them. And even the code sale came after we'd sold the book. So then she sent it out with no, no publications coming, you know, from the book of stories. And she sent it out to about 10 editors and all of them said, no, some said it in a sort of form letter way. Some said it in ways that were insulting and some said in ways that were uh, very nice again, but still rejections. Mm -hmm. And so then the agent basically said, this is, so this is 98 when we're sending it out. So again, this is like before like now you have the landscape of like independent presses that do amazing work that just didn't exist then. So she basically said, well, none of these 10 place editors I sent it to, uh, who were all like whatever we call big five or whatever the number was at the time, uh, none of them won it. So I think you should just start working on the next book. And I was just like, okay, uh, I was really dejected, you know, cause I didn't have a next book in mind at all. And then I went to a party and it was a party for like folks from the MFA program I went to. Uh, everyone's hanging out. And there's this uh, woman there named Heather Clay, who I'd been in class with. And uh, she said, you know, I've got a friend of mine. She just took a job as an editor at Vintage Books, which is the um, paperback side of Knopf uh, under Random House. And she said, uh, and I know that they brought her on because they want to restart this line of paperback originals that did really well for them in the 80s. They published like Bright Lights, Big City. Uh, Tama Janowitz, a couple mm. other people, like some of these 80s New York writers who who hit big because they were putting out these new writers, but it was only 10 bucks a book. So people were willing to take a chance kind of thing. So she said, why don't you send it to her? Uh, and essentially I sent it to her. She read the stories. She got them in a way that the other editors did not. And she said, I want to buy this book and I want to publish this book. And that was how the book came to be published uh, and even Heather, I went to her, I always tell this story to my students. I, I went to her later and I said, Heather, like, what made you even suggest 
that I send this to this editor named Jenny Minton. And she said, well, you know, in workshop, you were always critical, but you were never an asshole. <laughs> and I wanted to help. <laughs> and I always tell my students, you know, writers, we are the most thin-skinned human beings on earth. Yeah. And if you are cruel, we will remember and destroy you. Yes, that's, you get the chance. that's true. Yeah, I write angry. Yes, I certainly, I will. I mean, I even tell you like, some, like many years later, I, I was on the, I was on a jury for uh, the National Book Award and one or two books came across that I was like, I remember them from the MFA. They were assholes. Right. And I had to say to myself, don't take it out on them. Be an yeah. adult, you know, and they didn't even make the finals anyway. So it doesn't matter. But that's, that's, that's when you accidentally knock over the water glass. That's right. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. So, but all that is to say that is, so like the journey of that book is that I had an agent and- as great as she was, she wasn't able to sell the book. And then I had an MFA, but the way it helped was that I knew this woman from class. It wasn't that the degree. It was, was the networking. The, it was the networking. Yeah. And I, okay, so there's a couple of things I want to unpack from that story because it's a great story. And I, I think there's some things that could really help uh, people to listen to. And one of the things that I found, first of all, you got referred by the professor to an agent. And if, agent, and if, and if you can get a referral... Uh, to an agent, I know that carries a lot of weight, especially if the agent is respects, you know, the the other writer. And a lot of times, I'll tell people when you are querying an agent, you know, and there are other not necessarily writers who would refer you or you know personally, but if there are other writers who uh, they represent who you think you are akin to or your writing is akin to, mention those writers because if they got, you know, if they if they if they connected with someone who you feel maybe you're similar to. Uh, you know, it's a good thing to mention. But the other thing that shocked me about your story was that you got an agent based on short stories, which today I don't, you know. Right, right. Right? It's difficult. It's like everyone wants the novel. Do you think that's changed or is that just, was that an anomaly or do you feel, or am I, or am I not correct? Well, I do think it kind of goes in the short story, uh, sort of like the openness to short stories. I do think travels in waves mm -hmm. like uh the time so i was at that point i was publishing like literary realist short stories about growing up in new york city right they're very autobiographical short stories and at that same time you had a couple writers who were coming out really huge with stuff that was similar you had jumpa lahiri who was writing about the indian american experience goes on to win the pulitzer prize for her book of short stories you had juno diaz writing a novel called drown uh that was a national bestseller and mm -hmm. made made his reputation so i think there was also a way that in that moment and then within the subgenre of literary realist fiction it looked like oh there's openness to this kind of thing right and so i came in in that, I think I, I think I really benefited from that. And then I would say within five years, when it turned out that like, you know, I mean, I think I'm very proud of my book and it got very lovely notices here and there, but it wasn't winning no Pulitzer Prizes or bestseller lists, you know? Right. And uh, that is the life of the majority of collections of stories. And I think, so after a couple of years, I would say three, four years, agents and such kind of maybe went back to like, you know what I want is just a novel. Yeah, because they want to make... Money. They want to make 15%. Yeah. They want to make some money or at least the chance of making some money, you know? Uh, and then I think that last, so I, in my experience, maybe that goes for about four or five years where that becomes the sort of dogma of many agents, not all, but many. And then at a certain point, something connects. So George Saunders comes out, right? And he's, right. He, he's publishing these 
literary, fantastical, speculative books that are connecting, published in the New Yorker and all the rest. And then all of a sudden the appetite, I'm thinking of a more recent example, all of a sudden the appetite opens again. Or the stories of Kelly Link, right? Her first couple books, you can see things sort of building. You can see it with Laird Barron, you know, right? Like you can see the ways that, oh, that's working. Okay, I'll be open to some stuff like that. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think people... Writers, you know, they're always warned, don't chase trends, Yes, right? Don't write to trends, but trends are cyclical. And what you're writing now, if it gets rejected a hundred times in a year or two, it might be exactly what people are looking for. So that's right. Keep, and then, okay. Don't delete it. Don't, del- <laughs> don't delete it. Right. And okay. And then, okay. So I'm going to segue that because I've, I've I love that we could feel 30 minutes just talking about your first book, but I want to- Can I throw in one thing there? I just wanted to agree with you and like- Yeah, please, and, of course. Uh, and restate the point because my wife, so my wife is also a writer and in a quirk of fate, before we ever knew each other, she, when she was in her MFA, she's a few, four years younger than me. So when she was in her MFA, she actually was a, worked as an, like a, an intern for my agent. And one of the things she said she learned from that experience was exactly what you were saying was the letters- like the blind query letters, to use to use an old term, um, right. that were most effective were the ones where the person had clearly at least taken a few minutes to look up who the agent represented, exactly, and to say the to write those names. And her point was like, number one, it shows that you did a little work. Number two, it shows that this is not a generic letter. Uh, and number three, her whole point was everyone likes flattery. And so if you hear if someone says you have such great taste. I love the mystery writers you publish. And this person and that person and that person, they write so well about place and, or they write about this, you know what? And I, I was really inspired by that. And that's why I'm writing to you. She said she could see the agent just go like, oh, okay. They really did. They do know what I do. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll, even if they still rejected it, it was actually, she said like, it was actually them who read it and not her at the point, some 25 year old. Right. Not to dismiss 25-year-olds, but, you know, some 25-year-old who has whatever taste she has versus this woman in her 60s who's been publishing people for years who really understands the depth and breadth of what can make something great. Right. Okay. So everyone listening to this podcast, I want you to rewind the last two minutes and listen to it again very closely because that's probably the best advice uh, that I can think we've given on The Dark Word over the 12 episodes, which is how how to craft a great query letter. And to Victor's point, do your research, personalize it, make it meaningful. Don't just form letter it out. Okay, so a few things I want to unpack quickly. The networking thing, by the way, I want to touch on that again because we you, you brought it up and how you got your your connection to the vintage editor. And I, I we talk about networking a lot on this show and people hate that word. And even Paul Tremblay, when we were speaking, he's like, I know people hate this word, but networking, networking, networking. Yeah. And it's true. And it's like, and it's not about getting out there and going to a convention and schmoozing and handing your book out to hundred people. It's just about being yourself and meeting as many people as you can. And to your point, don't be an asshole, like be genuine and be a nice person, help writers. Uh, if you can help them, help them. But just knowing people is such a huge boon. Um, I've gotten so much from meeting writers, uh, not, 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 not agent connections or editor connections, but just, First of all, you get a feeling of community. You you get to know the more people who are like minded makes you more comfortable with what you're doing. If you ever need advice, you know there's you can always ask a, a writer who might be open to that. It's such a big thing to do is just immerse yourself 
in the community of like-minded writers, I think is such a huge, and then you never know, it could end up paying off. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I get DMs from writers who are like, you know, can you look at this or do you have advice on this or do you have a suggestion about that? And I'm always happy to help because people helped me when I was first, you know, crawling out of the muck. Right. And if I could just add in, like I would, I would also, I would, I, I agree with you. And I think the first thing is um, that it's worth noting that I don't know a single industry, schoolyard, or family that doesn't rely on the ability to be interested in other people and talk to them. Right? Like, a, a, how do you get on at a firehouse? I promise you, there's networking. Uh, how do you get on at the at Con Ed at the the power company? I promise you, there's some networking, especially if you're going to move up in those ranks. Like that's just the truth of of life, right? And I do think, but I think the the thing that can sometimes come up for us as writers is a lot of us are socially not adept people all the time, right? I'm a pretty introverted person, uh, and it can feel difficult to sort of make myself quote unquote talk to other people and all the rest. But I guess um, the other side of that is when I sometimes dig at my own, the ways that I am introverted and all the rest, it wouldn't be, if I was introverted and I said like, I don't feel comfortable reaching out to other people and therefore I can't really hold it against them if they don't feel all that warmly toward me, that would be one thing. But as Mm -hmm. an introvert, I know my actual feeling is I don't feel comfortable reaching out to people and they should all like me and want to help me. That's actually what I feel deep down inside. Right. And I do think sometimes the pushback against networking and all the rest doesn't allow for a realistic conversation saying like, it's okay if you don't want to network. It's okay if you don't want to be on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, but you also have to acknowledge the things that you lose right. as a result, right? And if that's okay, then you live happily in that. I mean, what's his name? Thomas Ligotti obviously has done a fine job not being a talking head on whatever and showing up everywhere and rattling his saber at the true detective people or whatever he might do. Right. 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 But um, what I think would be difficult is if like, then when you grab a beer with Thomas Ligotti, if he's like, how come I'm not on the cover of Locus? And you know what I mean? Like you, it can't have it can't be both. Yeah. Yeah. Why aren't I trending? Why aren't I trending? And you say like, well, <laughs> you don't talk to people, you know? Right. And so right. it's a matter, I think in all these things, it's just a matter of saying like, uh, on some level, you just have to be at peace with what you're willing to put out into the world and then what the world is going to give back to you. Yeah. And I know writers who are very much like, look, I know I'm not going to be a bestseller. I know uh, I'm not that, I'm not going to be out there marketing myself and hustling and all that stuff. And I'm okay with that. I'm Absolutely. okay selling, you know, whatever, hundreds of copies instead of thousands of copies instead of tens of thousands of copies. And I'm okay with that because for me, it's art or whatever. And, or, you know, what my goals are different. Everyone's goals are different and everyone has different, different levels of success. So I think it's a really good point. Um, And to your comment about, you talked earlier, we were laughing about don't delete that work and you, okay, let's talk about work ethic and what, and how that ties into the don't delete thing is you made a comment that I found very interesting. I read it in an old interview where you talked about writing, even if nobody notices your writing or nobody notices how qualified or great you are, you were like, keep writing because there will come the day where people will say, Hey, I like what you did. What else do you have? And you could say, Oh, I've got these two novels that I've been working on. And I'm going to contrast that a little bit with like, you've talked about, you know, you have kids, you have a TV show you're, you know, producing and writing. And then you have this, um, you know, you, you talk about writing in burst. So 
I think you said you write one place that I write in three hour bursts because that's all the time I have because I have the, I have so much going on in my life. So can you talk about how you write now with all the things you have going on and how that contrasts to maybe how you were writing a decade ago when maybe it was more about or maybe two decades ago when you weren't necessarily uh, an accomplished writer? Yeah, sure. Of course. Uh, so my um, I will say, um, broadly speaking, I became truly uh, productive once my wife gave birth to our kids. And before that, I certainly spent a lot of time writing, meaning I certainly spent a lot of time in front of the computer, but I didn't produce terribly much. Right. And that was because I would, it, what, or at least for me, right? Other people will feel different. Um, I might have, say, eight hours on a Saturday. I, did, we, I wasn't dating my wife. I was, let's say I was single or I was just casually dating people. I didn't have kids. I sit down at noon on a Saturday, right? Because I might wake up at 11. Let's say I will sit down at noon on a Saturday and I'm going to tell myself, I'm just going to make a, eight hours. I'm going to work. And over that course of that eight hours, I would easily spend a couple hours looking stuff up online. I'd play some music. I'd have a phone call. I'd tap away at the computer. I'd come back and erase what I tapped and come back. All this kind of stuff. And I'd, and I'd kind of fritter away that time. Uh, but I would say to myself, I've been working for eight hours, right? Um, and so when our first son was born, my wife and I are both are both writers, but that what that means for us is we're both teachers. Uh, that's our actual job that has like health insurance and makes a salary uh, in any regular way. And so uh, our son was born, our older son was born on May 21st. And that meant we were going into the summer. And one of the great benefits of the teaching life is that you have the summers potentially off, or at least you're teaching less. And so uh, my wife and I agreed we would each get to spend two hours out of the house that summer uh, juggling uh, childcare. So what I would do two hours out was not much at all. So I would just go to a Dunkin' Donuts around the corner from where we lived at the time in Washington Heights. Uh, I would perch there. And uh, essentially, I only had that two hours to work. I had to be back after the two hours so I could relieve my wife. And then she could get out and just do whatever uh, she was going to do for that time, um, whether it was right or just get some air, you know. Um, and in the beginning, I felt really hamstrung by that um, because how can I produce this in two hours? I can't just turn this thing on like a machine, blah, 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 blah. But like anything, right. it take, you know, like anything you train your body or your mind to do over time, your body or your mind will learn to do it, whether it's a healthy habit or an unhealthy habit. Um, and so essentially what I started to learn, I would say a few weeks in, maybe a month or two in, I, so I had from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Uh, every day. And we were, I was off teaching, so that's already a luxury, right? But what I started to, after a couple of weeks, what I saw was I would sit down at 10 a.m. And where before I was kind of fuzzy headed, what am I doing? This is this. All of a sudden, when I sat down, my mind said, all right, and go. I would go for that two hours, close the computer, go back to my wife. And that routine has stayed the same. In fact, now it's actually less time. Now it might be 10 to 11 or 11 to 12 because life has gotten busier. But even just that one hour a day, and then, uh, and that's not every day uh, because of uh, teaching, because of, of work uh, or other outside things. But I've been trying now, I, one hour a day, three to five days a week. The weekends are the family time. Um, for whatever reason, I find I still produce more than I ever did when I had eight unbroken hours. Yeah. And it's also, you're training your mind also, cause it's not just training your mind to say, go. It's like, cause you're, you're thinking about it leading up to 10 AM when you're changing the diapers or, or whatever. You're like, okay, I'm getting, re I'm, I'm already, my mind's already working on what's, what I'm, cause I know I'm only going to have this finite amount of time. So I'm, 
I'm, I'm internally prepping. Um, and you know, it's interesting because when I was working, you know, full-time in the film industry, I would have these weird, when we were shooting a film or a TV show, I could not write at all because you're talking about, as you know, now being immersed in it, you're talking long, long days yeah. and sometimes overnights and all this yes. other stuff. But, but I would have these windows where I'd be like, okay, but a show would end. And I knew I had like three weeks before I started another show. And so that three, those three weeks, I would get more done than I would in probably six months than if I wasn't working at all, because I was so bearing down on, I've only got three weeks. I've got to write as much. I got to get like a couple of novellas done. I got to work on the novel, whatever it would be. And now I write full time and I don't get anything done. (laughs) But I do think just something you said, right. For like, you don't need eight hours. You need an hour, Yes. you know, to your point, or maybe two hours, but, but make those two hours productive. Like when you sit down, you're typing, you're not, you're not checking out Twitter and scrolling through Facebook. Well, you know, the other thing I would add to that real quick is the other part about, like, you're, you're totally right. Like in the time beforehand, you're working things through. But what I also found is like, realistically, like after two hours, whatever I'm working on, after about two hours, my mind, it's really kind of worn out. Right. And so what starts to happen around the two hour mark, one and a half to two hour mark, what I also start doing is writing cliches, right? Like meaning like the sentences get sloppier or the things that happen are much more what you would expect, right? Uh, someone's trapped in a room. How will they get out? And it's going to be the expect, oh, there's a tool in their pocket that will, you know, it's everything you would expect. And so the other thing that I've learned is like around the two hour mark is when I, my brain is starting to wear down. And so I know I have to stop anyway, because that's what I've, at this point, I've taught myself that's that that old routine has taught me to stop there. But then over the next 22 hours, what's also happening is I'm saying, okay, it's not going to be a tool that just happens to be in their pocket. All right, what could it be? And then the next thing might be, oh, what if like something comes crashing down out of the sky like a meteor? You say, okay, that's terrible too. And by the time I'm I'm coming back to the next 10 a.m. the next day, usually I've worked through about three or four or five really cliched next steps. Yeah. And then not always, certainly sometimes there's a sixth and seventh cliche that I'm happy to throw in there and I have to edit later, but, but more often than not, by the time I get back to that next writing block, I'll have worked through those things in a way that I couldn't, if it was an eight hour stretch, because I would just be working on exhaustion the whole time. And so when I sit down, I go like, Oh, I know what's going to be. It's going to be that it turns out, remember I said in the first chapter that there was no subfloor in this house because it's such a cheap house. So the way that the person gets out is they just jam, they jump up and down on the floor till it cracks and they climb out underneath. And I go, oh, that is better. No subfloor. I haven't seen that before. Right. We had that in this house where we live now, but that's what, that's where the idea would come from. And I feel like and that, that would make a person when reading it maybe have a better chance of saying, huh, that was pretty good. Okay. I'll keep going. Yeah. I mean, it's the old, you know, it, it, always be writing. And that's, no. you know, my favorite time to write is, you know, that lucid dream state when you're kind of waking up, like I, or even going to bed. I love nothing more than thinking about what I'm going to write the next day when I'm, you know, falling asleep. It's my favorite thing to do. Cause I get so much done, you know, when I'm going to sleep and when I'm waking up, uh, even though I'm not even at my desk. And then when I sit down, I'm like, okay. And i get excited. Cause I'm like, I figured out what I'm going to do. So, and if, to come back full circle on that original question, I think writing in bursts is a great way to function if you don't have a lot of time and you have a lot of things going on in your life, which most people do. And also do those one hour bursts or two hour bursts, even if maybe you don't have an agent or you're not selling your stuff because that when that day comes, 
when you do sell something and maybe you do get an agent, you can say, here's what I've got in the trunk or here's what I've got in my drawer. Or here's what I've got in my back pocket. You know, I will say if I could add that just one like a, and I think to just think about um, um, my wife's got a friend uh, who she went to college with. She's married to her, the husband of the family works at a, in a corporate job at a very sort of like an assistant, you know, he's, he's running, helping to run an office kind of level. So it's not, it's like a, it's mindless work, but it's grueling work, you know, like it's all day, every day kind of thing. And so for the last, I wouldn't say it's 15 to 20 years. So he has to, you know, he leaves at 8 a.m. He, he's there till five. For the last 15 to 20 years, he gets up every day at 5.30 or 6. He goes down to the building's rec room, which is, you know, no one's got anyone. No one's down there at the time. And he writes for an hour. And over the course of that 15 years, whatever it's been, he's probably written about eight novels, maybe nine. Wow. Hasn't sold any of them yet. Has come close on some things, not not close on other things, all the rest. But I always, I, I feel like, number one, obviously, one, I like him very much. I really do want him to sell something, right? And to get that book out there. But to my mind, there's almost no one I know who I would be feel uh, more strongly that I would call a true writer mm -hmm. than this dude. Uh, regardless of what happens with the books in the future, he he sits, he's grinding away. He hates it and he loves it. All the various feelings, you know. Right. But he's doing that thing, full-time job, three kids. He doesn't always love doing it. He's exhausted and all the rest. But I just feel like um, anytime I ever get a chance to talk about writing, I always want to talk about him as well as a fellow writer, as opposed to the idea that publishing is when you become a writer. Yeah. And it's also an important, it's an important point because a lot of writers, like even myself included, is when you get those early rejections, it's discouraging. And you're like, that's it. I'm never, you know, like, screw it. I'm going to go back to, you know, painting landscapes. But, you know, it's it's got to be about the writing at the end of the day. And a lot of, one piece of advice I give a lot is when you're feeling discouraged about something that's happening on the professional side, meaning publishing or whatever, you know, what I do, and, and it solves a lot of problems is I go, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put the blinders on, I'm going to block all that stuff out. And I'm going to throw all of my focus into this next thing that I'm writing. And that's all I'm going to think about is this story. I'm not going to think about the rejections. I'm not going to think about my career. I'm not going to think about my, you know, I, I'm just going to think about this story. And that has gotten me out of a lot of emotional jams over the years. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Okay. Two quick points. Cause I only got a few minutes left and then I get cut off. So <laughs> I do, I do. It sucks. Okay. So I, I, one thing I want to touch on very quickly, because I love this um, point that you made, you, you made a comment. It, it, it's easy to root for this. I'm talking about characters now, characters in fiction. It's easy to root for people who do good all the time. I've never met a person like that. And you actually tweeted yeah. a few minutes before we went on. I was like, I was on Twitter, never trust a book where the main character is done wrong by others, but they never do others wrong. And it's essentially the flawed character. But I can't tell you how many times I've sent a story or a novel or a screenplay to somebody and they've been like, I don't like any of these characters. I'm like, I know because they're real people. What do you, where do you land on the whole likable thing? I have an idea I know, but I would like to love to hear your, your thoughts. I would say in the past, my feeling was like, ah, screw you. Likable doesn't mean anything, blah, 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 blah. Right. Nowadays, I'm an artist. Yeah, that kind of thing. But nowadays what I think more is is a character understandable. Okay. Like a lot of times when people say, I don't like these characters. Sometimes there's just people like, uh, to use an extreme example, if a character in the story is divorced, there's a certain kind of person who's just never going to like that person for whatever reason, right? Right. Uh, so you say, okay, I have to, you just let those 
people go, the people who are going to make sort of like knee-jerk decisions over character traits. Like, what can you do about that? But uh, I think, or at least I hope, the majority of readers, all they really need to do, know is why people are doing the things they're doing, even when they're doing the ugliest things. What's the motivation? Is it real? Is the motivation understandable? Is, that- is it understandable? Because, you know, of course, like, the, there's no one who, um, there's no one who, th- I, I mean, this is an old idea, right? It's a cliche uh, in, in its own right. But there's nobody who thinks they are doing bad things. They just right. don't. Everybody has reasons for the things they're doing, even when they harm other people incredibly, right? Even if the reason they're doing it is just sort of like the world's never been good to me. So what do I owe the world? Right. And I yeah. feel like if, you, if a person is lashing out at everybody and, and that's all you show, then they're just assholes. Right. But if you show a person who says the world's never been good to me, why should I be good to the world? You don't necessarily like that person, but you might kind of go, I felt that way sometimes. Yeah. It doesn't have to be somebody you root for. It just has to be somebody you understand. Somebody you understand. I, now that, I mean, I didn't, I didn't always feel this way, but the last, I want to say five to eight years, I realized that maybe, because uh, what I also noticed was like, when the argument about likability comes up, you can't convince someone to like someone they've decided they don't like, right? You just can't. Mm-hmm. But I, what I started to find over time was like, like with my students and stuff, I'll say like, uh, they'll say the whole class says like, I really hated this character and this person's story. And, and we'll just sit there for a little bit now and say like, well, why did they do the things that they did that made you hate them? And what we often will uncover is the author had all this reasoning for why the person's doing these things, mm-hmm. but they didn't put that on the page. And then when we talk about it a little bit, the people go like, oh, well, I'm not saying it makes it okay, but that at least feels more human can you write that in there? Can you put that in there? Right. And then the author gets to hear like, oh, okay. Okay. It doesn't mean that I have to make everybody sweet and kind. Right. Yeah. And I think readers also get excited when they read somebody that does something unexpected or when they, when they read somebody who they think is going to go one way and then surprises them. Like, oh, I know. Oh, I Oh, it's this. Oh, he's this guy. Right. He's the big brooding ape. Who's going to be a jerk to, and it's like, oh, that's, you know, oh, he did something unexpected or sweet or whatever. And I think that is also um, a great thing to do with with characters. Um, All right, dude, uh, I have to wrap it up. But before I go, I want to add, I know I have have like so much more I want to talk to you about, but maybe we'll get another opportunity. Um, Real quick, because I know you teach the stuff. Books on writing for the for the writers listening out there. Do you have one or two go-tos that you recommend? Yes, actually, the one that I use the most often – is a book called uh, by a writer, a last name of the writer is Truby, T-R-U-B-Y. Maybe you know- John Truby, John yeah. Truby, you know that one? Um, yeah, the 22 Beats. The, yeah, the, the, um, the art of- The anatomy of story. Anatomy of story. That's, I just looked over to my, I looked over to my left and it's okay. sitting on my desk. That's yeah. the one that I actually recommend the most. Um, mm-hmm. And I recommend it the most, even though like you, if, if anyone picks it up, you look at it, you think it's, a, and, and its main focus is uh, screenwriting, right? Right. But as he states very early in the text, what he's actually focused on is, char- is, is writing where characters' choices make things happen. Mm-hmm. And I personally feel like, or characters having things done to them that they then have to deal with. Right. So right. it doesn't always have to be active. Yeah. yeah, it can be active or reactive, but mm-hmm. either way that it's grounded in people and how people act in the world, as opposed to, you know, there's three acts and 
by this point, this better happen or this better happen or that better happen. Right. Um, uh, he, that's not what the book is like. And it really is a very, uh, I, I kind of love it because he does go into all these different components of story, always with a character focus. Um, and in the book, he basically says, like, don't move on to the next chapter until you can answer the questions on the craft element at the end of this chapter. And so in that way, you're building out what you know about the story and the world and really thinking it through in ways that can be useful. And, I, you know, I say that only because, you know, sentence structure, things like that, I like they're vital, but I feel like those are so idiosyncratic. Some people, they got to write clear. Some people write lyrical. Some people write in an archaic tone. Right. I don't, I, honestly, I don't see the point of a, of a, a writing book that tells you about that stuff. Right. Because that's so individual. It's just about telling the story. Yeah. But this one is just about like figuring out who are your people in the story? What is the world like? How do they affect the world? Or how does the world make them make choices? Yeah. And I'll say this to people listening, uh, because I've done this. Uh, If you go to John Truby's website, that's T-R-U-B-Y. You can can listen to his um, lectures. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Hey, Victor, man, thank you so much for being here. I'm ecstatic that we connected and best of luck with the TV show and with the upcoming novel. You do have a novel coming up, coming out soon. Is that right? That's the theory. We're going to see how it goes, but (laughs) I'm revising it now. So we'll see. It's supposed to come out next spring. Okay. Spring 2023. Yes. In theory. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to hold you to it. All right, sir. This has been such a pleasure, man. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, and, and guys listening, uh, man, thank you so much. It's been a great season on The Dark Word, and uh, I hope that we get another chance to do it. Thanks again for listening, you guys. Happy writing. Hey, you guys, it's Philip again. Listen, that was a great season. I had a blast. I hope you did too, but I got great news. The folks at Audio Hopper have picked us up for a season two. Very excited. So please make sure to hit that follow button or subscribe and you'll be notified when season two launches later this year. I'm going to have all new guests and more great advice for you writers. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for more of The Dark Word. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.